Take your Bibles and go to Psalm 90, Psalm 90 this morning. As you go there, we are in the break point between chapter 2 and 3 of Colossians. And I like to take a break, go to the Old Testament. It's good for our souls. It's good for our um, love and appreciation for God's Word to see the Scriptures and all of their unity. And you'll see connections between what we talk about today and next week when we pick up chapter 3 in the book of Colossians. Today, um, we're going to preach a message entitled, The Everlasting God from Psalm 90. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word together. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought forth, we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason or strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Yahweh, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your holy inspired word. And we pray now even as we have been singing and praying and lifting up truth that right now you will pour out the power of your Holy Spirit that our hearts will readily receive your truth, that we will see you for who you are as the everlasting God. Teach us, God, to number our days, that we may gain hearts of wisdom, and that we may cling to the cross of Christ and to the glorious gospel of salvation. Show show us your power by changing and transforming our hearts. Bring sinners into salvation and into a saving relationship with you. Strengthen your church that we may be witnesses to the gospel before a watching world and establish our works, all the things that we do, all the ways of our lives in such a way that we will bring glory and honor to your name. Thank you for your goodness. Fill me with the Spirit. Cleanse me of my sin. Use me now. And may the word be faithfully and clearly 
explained. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look at this psalm, it invokes a question. And the question that it invokes is, how do we make sense of a world that is marked by sin and death? How how do we make sense of our lives when so many of our moments and our years are filled with sorrows and trials and difficulties? This psalm, Psalm 90, brings this question before us in a very deep and personal way. In fact, if you paid close attention, you'll observe quickly that your life is short. You are deeply broken and sinful. Let me rephrase that. Our lives are short. We are deeply broken and sinful. We are all going to die, and there is no escaping it. I appreciate this psalm in the Word of God because there's no Photoshop here. You know what I mean? There's, there's no Photoshop. There's, there's, there's no removing what is, is shocking or difficult. There's no facades of positivity. There's no denial of reality. The psalmist speaks with clarity. And when you get to the end of the psalm, from the beginning all the way to the end, you see that apart from a right understanding of the eternal God, the true and living God, you cannot make sense of anything in your life or in the world in which we are living. Let, let this statement from A.W. Tozer kind of uh, provoke you. A.W. Tozer write, writes or wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Without doubt, the mightiest thought the mind can entertain is the thought of God. And the weightiest word in any language is its word for God. The man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. That is a very provoking thought in light of the text that we've read. And I want us then to consider our belief about God and what Moses, the man of God who writes this psalm under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what he says. And so as we think about our thinking and belief about God, consider that this psalm, it's the oldest psalm. And it is the only psalm that is attributed to or, or, or we're told that it, that was written by Moses. You see that in the subscript at the beginning, if you're looking at your Bible, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. This reminds us that God's people have always looked at God's unfolding revelation and faithfulness in the past to inform their present circumstances. In other words, Psalm 90 teaches us that there is an unbroken chain of truth that connects all of us throughout all generations in salvation. And if there's anyone who can teach us about life, about death, about eternity, about judgment, well, it'd be Moses. Would you not agree? He's the human author of the Pentateuch that the Holy Spirit used, as well of the Pentateuch, meaning Genesis through Deuteronomy. And he's also the most important or significant leader of Israel in the Old Testament. 
In fact, if you go to Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you'll see that he wrote songs. Exodus 14, he wrote a song of deliverance after they came through the Red Sea. Deuteronomy 32 through 33 is our ballads that celebrate the faithfulness of God in the history of the nation or the people of Israel. And so Moses stands in a special prophetic position to speak to the human condition and to point us to the hope that can only be found in the true and living God. That's what, that's why this psalm is included in the psalms. And so today, what I want you to do with me is I want to kind of just take us through this. And I want you to observe, as we work through this psalm, I want you to observe the ominous beauty of the words, the movement of the stanzas, the realism of the poetry that are going to strike all of us and the heart at the core. And I want you to see the divine truths that confront our reality, our fears, and offers us infinite hope. So here's the key truth that you'll see as we walk through. Faced with sin, death, and judgment, our only refuge and hope is the everlasting God. I mean, that's the theme of the psalm. And as we seek to see this theme in this psalm, we're going to have four movements in the psalm. I say movements because this psalm would have been sung among the Jewish people when they gathered in the temple to worship. And so, four movements. We'll look at the greatness of God. We will look at the shortness of life. We will look at the tragedy of sin. And then we will conclude with the prayer of salvation that concludes the psalm. So, let's look at this and anchor our souls to the truth of God. First, I want you to see the greatness of God. Look at the text. Verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So I want you to see that it's really important to see that Moses starts here, because you know it's going to get dark, right? You paid attention in the beginning. Like the next stanza, it gets dark. So Moses begins, he starts with God. And there are three things that he says to us about our God. One, he says that he is Lord. See it? Lord, you have been our dwelling place. In other words, he is our sovereign ruler. The word Lord in Hebrew is Adonai, which is a title that demonstrates his expansive sovereignty over everything. In other words, the psalm starts with, he is king. He is king, and all things are under his control. The word Lord communicates strength sovereignty, and it demonstrates to his people that he commands us. But notice what's next. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Don't you love how the scripture moves from this lofty view of God to this tender presentation of God? Lord, sovereign one, you, you are our dwelling place in all generations. And so he's not only our sovereign Lord, but he's our secure refuge. To his redeemed people, God is not just our sovereign, he is our shelter. He is our security. He is our secure refuge. 
And, 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 and literally what this means is, he says, Lord, you are our home. We have our home in you. What do you think of when you think of your home, right? You think of safety. Like if there's a tornado or there's a storm, like where do you, your kids want to go? Well, they want to run to the basement, right? They want to run to safety. And they don't want to be out in the middle of a field. They don't want to be, they want to be home. They want to be safe. And so the, 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 the idea here is, is that God is our shelter and we are home in him. And we'll look at that more next week in Colossians 3. But we are secure in him. We are protected from troubles and threats. And so the sovereign Lord who commands is also the secure refuge who comforts. Who comforts. And notice what he says. He says, in all generations, not just now, not just in this moment, but Moses takes us throughout the whole uh, span of history and says that God is our refuge in all generations. Isn't that what he said in Deuteronomy 33? Remember verse 27, it says, the eternal God, he says to Israel, gathered at the mountain, the eternal God is your home, your dwelling place. And underneath are the everlasting arms. And so what is being communicated here is that God is unchanging. He is the same in all generations. And here's the point. If he was faithful for those who have come before us, guess what? He will be faithful to us. So if I have a, if I have a comprehensive understanding of the, of God's purposes and plans in redemption and his work throughout history from Genesis through Revelation, guess what I will conclude? I will draw the conclusion that God is faithful to his people. I mean, think of Moses for a minute, right? I mean, again, he's the human author of this psalm. Remember? Do you, you, you know the story of Exodus. Moses would have, he would have watched the death angel pass through Egypt, killing the firstborn. He would have witnessed the crushing of Pharaoh's army beneath the waters of the Red Sea. He saw the earth open and swallow the wicked who had rebelled against the authority of the Lord. He saw serpents attack the people of Israel from the wilderness. And he witnessed many dead bodies dropping dead in the desert. And so if anybody understood the reality of sin and death and judgment, it certainly would have been Moses. And yet at the same time, Moses also saw all the ways that God saved his people. How he sent the plagues. How he shed the blood of the lamb and instructed that it be put on the doorposts and the lentils of the house so that when the death angel would pass through the land, he would pass over the children of Israel who were saved and covered by the blood of the Lamb. Moses would have seen the parting of the Red Sea and those great walls of water as they lifted and raised up into the air and the children of Israel passed through on dry land. Moses would have been in the wilderness and witnessed the raising of the brazen serpent. And watch people be healed. He saw the provision of manna from heaven. The water coming from the rock. The point that I'm getting at is. Moses knew and witnessed the faithfulness of God. And what he says here. That resonates with us. Is that he is our secure refuge. In all generations. And we know that even more clearly. Because of the gospel. Of Jesus Christ. And the coming of Christ into the world. 
And so we see throughout all of the history of God's people that God has been their constant home and refuge. But there's another thing that Moses, that is said here. The psalm not only says he's our sovereign ruler, that he's not only our secure refuge, but he is our steady reality. Look at verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, this God in whom we dwell. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And what, what we see here is a, a wonderful truth about God's character and attributes. He is the eternal one. God is eternal, and from him the mountains came forth. He has formed the entire universe. All of creation finds its origin in God. He is the creator. And here is the inconceivable thought. Think about this. God has no beginning. Just just think about that. Take your mind and start going back. Go back as far as you can go, and you will never reach a point where God has a beginning. He's eternal. He has always existed. Nothing brought him into being. And he depends on nothing for his existence. And when you just really tease that out and just sit and meditate on that, your, your head will start to hurt. I mean, that's just profound. And also, he has no ending. He will always be forever. He has, he has no ending. But, but in our, in our world, everything comes to an end. But he is eternal. He has no succession of moments. Whereas like we, we live in successions. We began the service, we'll come to the end of the service. God's not, he doesn't move through time. He reigns over time. He sees all things at once. Past, present, and future. Think about going to a ball game. You go to a ball game, you begin in the first inning, and you go through a, progress, a progression of innings, and you get to the ninth. But, but the, way, the way God sees a baseball game would be he sees all of it at once. Because he exists, in each, he, because he is eternal. That's why he's omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. This is the everlasting God. And it's not just God in terms of some generic reference to God. This is the God who has revealed himself in his word as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father eternal, Son eternal, Spirit eternal. And therefore, our hope and our refuge is in this eternal God. Even Christ made himself, made it clear that he had no beginning and end. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He has always been. He will always be. And that is why God in Christ must be our refuge. So here's the question. Do you anchor your life and soul in this everlasting God? Can you say that I find my home in the everlasting God? That He is my refuge? That He is my shelter? Because He inhabits eternity. So the psalm begins with the greatness of God, but notice the next movement, verse 3. You return man to dust. So now I know why He started with God. Because He's contrasting the greatness of God with the frailty of man. Because you're not going to understand anything in the abyss of darkness of the next several verses until you first have a right belief about God. 
But notice the shortness of life. He describes our condition, folks. In light of the truth that God is great and everlasting, he gives us the shortness of life. And look at verse 3. In verse 3, we see that death is sure. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Here, Moses is referencing Genesis and God's word to Adam. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Remember when he spoke to Adam after he had sinned in the garden? And though we would sit here today and we would avoid, we would wish to avoid talking about death altogether, here's the truth. Hear me. You and I are going to die. Death is terrible. Death is evil. And But yet, the, the truth is, death comes to all. To men, to women, to boys, to girls, to young and to old. I don't care who you are in this room this morning. You need to listen. Death is sure. Yesterday I walked over at Buzzard's Roost and I walked the Hoggart's, the Hoggart's Trail. And I went, you go up that up the back side of it and you come to this graveyard, one of those old cemeteries. You walk in there and as I usually do, I like to read what's on the cemetery, what's on the tombstones. And I go to the end, there's, there buried is Alex Hoggart. And it kind of struck me because he died when he was 48 years old. And you kind of just gasp and you think, wow, the way my heart's beating right now after walking up that giant hill, I'm only 46, I'm 46, and so that puts me pretty close to the reality of death. So the point is, death is sure. You don't believe me, read the obituaries. Visit old cemeteries and learn the truth of mortality. Death will come for each of us. Hebrews 9, 27. For it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. And you know what this invokes upon us? Are we ready? Are we prepared to die? Are we prepared for eternity? There could be no more important question pressed upon all of us this morning than this. Are we ready to face death? Because it's going to come. But, but notice the other thing. He says death is soon. Look verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past, or as a watch in the night. A thousand years, he says, is like a single day to God. It's like yesterday to him. Or just a watch in the night where a soldier is on duty. What he's trying to do is show us that, that we are not like God. We are frail creatures. He gives us a snapshot of time, reminding us that our lives will fade into forgotten memory. And death will be here soon. With each passing moment, death gets closer. I was thinking about this just yesterday again. It seems like, it just seems like I, I can peel back time and, and just remember when all my kids were, were little and they sounded like chipmunks. And then, and then yesterday Eden got in my car and I, I did a double take and realized, oh wow, like she's, she's a teenager. She's growing up. Where did time go? How quickly it's passing. Are we recognizing that death will be soon? And, and so, verse 5. No, notice, and so we're moving, and so the truth is getting, it's building, right? Death is sure. Death is soon. We know that we don't have unlimited time. But then, in verse 5 and 6, we, he, he raises the, 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 the metaphor, and, and we see that death will come swiftly. Look at the text. You sweep them away. That's death. As with a flood. 
They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is, and is renewed. And in the evening it fades and it withers. It's a reminder to us in our humanity that death comes quickly upon us. Life is fragile and vulnerable. Death is like a flash flood that rises in and out, out of a creek. A few years ago, I was a chaplain for the DNR law enforcement. And it was right, uh, the week right after COVID hit. So all the craziness with COVID's going on. And I was called to a scene. And the dispatcher said, when you get there, you need to be prepared because there's been fatalities and there's children involved. Well, what had happened is tor- torrential rains had come over the area, that, in, the, that area in Indiana, just early that morning. And in this little town, Laurel, Indiana. And the bridge was swept away. And a mother was taking her three kids to grandparents before going to work. And she didn't see that the bridge was washed out. And her vehicle plunged into the river. And the river swept them away. They were later found dead. And I'll never forget standing in that room, in that house, in the weight of that darkness. When they brought the first little girl into that room, and they put her down on that ground, and they, they, they put her into, into a body bag. And I'll never forget looking down there and thinking, wow, how absolutely ruthless death is. It just, sw- it just sweeps us away. And it was such a reminder of of the reality of death that we all live before. It is it is a rem, it is a reminder. Even as I, I I just can recall that looking at her, the mud, the dirt matted in her hair, the smudges on her face, my heart breaking for the family, and just being reminded that we are not promised a single moment, and death will come, and it will sweep the bridge away. And we will all plunge. And the question is, will we plunge into the everlasting hands of the God who saves? And so death is swift. But the writer switches images. Look look at it. Look at verse 6. He, he says, okay, it, it's, not, it's not only like a river that's, that, uh, not only like a river that sweeps us away like a flood. He says they're like a dream, like grass. Do you, got, you, do you all see it? Look at the text. I mean, look at the images. Life is like a dream that you have at night. It's like grass that grows and then withers away. Beauty fades. Youth dissipates. Life withers. Your life is a shadow, James says, James chapter 4. It's like a vapor that appears for a little while and then disappears. Death will come unannounced. It will come unexpectedly. Death gives no notice. And death is unavoidable. You can be here today, and you can be gone tomorrow. And that is the reality of a fallen world. I know it hits us, because it's like, we don't want to think about that. But I'm glad that the Word of God calls us to think about that. And here's the truth that we need to, that we need to absorb. Here, here's how we apply this. Listen, life is going by fast. And we must be prepared for death. That is what the psalmist is driving at through this section. But what it does is, is that, yes, it gives us the reality, but it also, it also makes us ask a question, but why? And all of us have asked why. 
There's not been a time that we have stood in the face of death that we haven't in somewhere in the regions of our heart said, why? Why is it like this? Why the tragedies? Why the sadness? Why the suffering? And Scripture gives us the answer. Why? Why is life short? Why is death short? And coming soon and swiftly. And look at the third movement. Because of this tragedy of sin. Look, look what he says. In verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. Again, a generic explanation. Why is there death in this world? Because of sin. You're not going to hear that in a science class that teaches evolution. But the word of God is extremely clear that the reason there is death, it doesn't mean that when someone dies, it's specifically related to a sin they committed. It's just a reality. Church, listen, people, listen, folks, we're all going to die because sin is a part of this realm and we have all sinned. That is the explanation that the word of God gives. And so Moses moves now to give this explanation of the shortness of life. And he tells us then that the tragedy of sin is the fact that it's, it is a reflection of the wrath of God. Look at verse 7. He says, we are consumed by wrath. For we were brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. Or in other translations, it says consumed. So in verses 3 through 6, we see that Moses has acknowledged the reality of death in the world. But now in verse 7, he is attaching it to what we know Genesis 3 teaches. This is part of the curse. God returns us to dust. Why? Why? Well, you can go back to Genesis 3, and you can read verse 17 through 19, and God says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. And you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. God says to Adam. Genesis 3. We go to the ground because we have all sinned. Wait a minute, that's Adam, Romans 5.12. Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So verse 7 and 8 is clear that we are brought to an end and it is it is a reflection of God's judgment upon the world because of sin. And we will all be consumed by God's wrath in our physical death. So death is a part of God's wrath against sin. All are sinners. Every death points us to the reality of sin that is in the world and, and then it also points us to the reality that death is not the end. Because there's not just physical death, there is eternal death. And anyone who has not run to Christ for refuge in salvation will not just experience physical death, will experience eternal death in hell forever. This whole thing is far more serious than we could imagine. This isn't like, oh, you know, you're going to, we're all going to die, so let's just live it up. Right? That's not what we're saying. 
We're saying that not only is it appointed unto men once to die, but after this there is a judgment. There is an eternal, there is eternal throne that we're to stand before. In verses, in verse 8, you have said, and, and I want you to, ju- just so you can see the reality of sin connected to God's wrath, look at verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. Wow. The psalm presses us, reminding us that the everlasting God sees all the sins that we commit. We are not innocent bystanders. We are not victims of circumstance. We are sinners that are guilty before a holy God. He sees all. He knows all. And there is full exposure. And he even says, even our secret sins, even the thoughts that no one knows, even the things we do that we think are done in the presence of no one, all of it is done in the presence of a holy, righteous, and glorious God. We can fool others. We can deceive ourselves. But God sees all and he knows all to the very depth of our thoughts and motives. And so the tragedy of sin is that we are consumed by wrath. And so what the psalm does is it uniquely links death with sin and death as a part of God's judgment. And then we see in verse 9 through 10, we go back to the shortness of life and we see that we are cursed by time. So, so, so notice how God's judgment plays out in our lifespan. Look at verse 9. For all our days pass away under your wrath. It's not just, oh, you're getting old. <laughs> That's not it. No, all the pain and all the affliction and all the things I'm experiencing, it is because it is a part of God's judgment in this realm. And then we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. So we're cursed by time. I mean, look at, look at what he said. Our days are, are marred. He connects the end of our life to the reality of God's wrath. Our days pass under this judgment. And then we come to the end of our life, not with, we don't expire, we don't go out with a bang. We slip away with a sigh. We expire. We die. Our days are marred by that reality. Our days are marked. Look at verse 10. He revisits the brevity of life and he says, listen, you may live to be 70 or 80. Young people, you may think you have all your life ahead of you, but you're not guaranteed that. Maybe some people will live into their 90s or even their 100s. But death will come. Our days on earth are marked. And not only are they marked, they're filled with trouble and sorrow. Because that's what he says. Do you see what he says? He, I mean, look at it. He, he says, yet they're span. Okay, even if you live to 70 or 80, well, great, but guess what? The older you get, the more you feel what's happening. Right? You're not get, you aren't getting, we aren't getting younger. And so, and so what he's, what he's saying is, is that even the span of our life it has all this trouble and toil in it. And then, and then, I mean, it's, it's, look what he says in the shattering conclusion of verse 10. They're soon gone and we fly away. In other words, what he's saying is nothing lasts. Nothing lasts. And so any of us who would think that, you know, 
you have forever in this life. Or that all of us living for the moment and placing eternal value on earthly things. I want you to think about this. The whole philosophy of our culture of live for the moment, live for earthly things. We chase dreams, careers, money, pleasure, success, sports, hobbies, thinking that the whole point of life, and this is what we've been told in America, that the whole point of life is just to find a, a little bit of happiness in this life. But what we don't, we don't pay attention to is the text says that that little bit of happiness is filled with toil and trouble. And there is a God to whom we all are going to answer to. This whole idea of that the whole purpose of life is just find a little bit of happiness, it's an illusion. And it is a lie. The life is fleeting and the time is flying by. And judgment is looming. But then in verse 11, we're confronted with truth. Don't worry, I'm going to get us out of this. No, I'm not going to get us out of this. God's word will get us out of this, okay? Watch. We're confronted with truth. He asks a question. All right, so he brings us down to all this. Oh, he, he, it's reality. I told, we said that in the beginning. But then in verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Now he's getting personal. He asks a question. He asks a question because he recognizes that we human beings are too busy to ponder this question. Do we ever stop and think about death, about God's wrath, about our sin? And do we ever consider that the wrath that is from God is because God is to be feared? He is to be revered. He is to be honored. He is to be obeyed. And we have not. And so he asks this question, and he says, listen, do, 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 who considers? Are you considering the power? Who considers the power of God's wrath and anger? And your wrath according to the fear. Who looks at God's wrath and compares it to the truth that he is to be feared because he's God? No, we're too busy just living our lives. You remember the guy in Luke who built the barns and filled them with stuff? He spent his whole life busy building. And he gets to, the, he gets to a point where he reaches the perfect state of comfort. And then he sits back and he says, and, the, and Jesus says that he looks at himself and he says, soul. He, he addresses his soul and says, you have ample goods laid for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And God says to that man, you're a fool. Because tonight, your soul is required. We are so consumed, aren't we? With busyness, busy, 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 distractions, entertainment, social media, that we never pause our lives and think about what we're hearing this morning. All that God would pause everything else that's going on right now, all the things that are going to happen on the rest of the course of this day, and may he pause us for this holy moment, for all of us in this room to think about the things that really matter. And the truth of death and sin that this text has revealed. And the judgment of God. Because we, don't, we never ask, am I living my life with a proper fear of the Lord? Am I living my life in light of eternity? No, I'm just flipping from, from, from trivial thing to trivial thing to trivial thing. 
I'm not stopping and I'm not asking, am I, am I living? Listen, Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So the psalmist asks a question. Are we thinking about all this? And are we thinking about it in light of the everlasting God and our relationship to him? But then he issues a prayer. Verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. In other words, if we fear the Lord, then we will ask him to number our days. You know what that means? Set eternity before me. Set eternity before me. Make me think about the things that are important to my soul. I don't want to gain the whole world and lose my own soul. And not only will we begin to prepare our own souls, but we will prioritize eternal things for the ones we love. I remember when I was a young father, and I read a book by an author all of you would know. And he said, what is more important for you right now as a father, he was talking to fathers, is not that your kid knows how to hit a ball, but that he knows to fear the Lord. What is important for you, for your children, for your grandchildren, more important than anything else is for them to know the gospel And what it means to love and treasure Christ and to live their life recognizing, not in despair, not in not in depression, but to live their life in the reality that life is short, that judgment is real, and that our entire life is lived before the Lord. And then that they will see the everlasting God. But in that book, the author says, but remember the cost. You will have to reprioritize your life. And that hit me. I had to put aside some of my hobbies, some of my earthly priorities, and I had to take the time not just to live in front of them, but to sit them down at the table and say, you're not just going to hear this in the pulpit at the church. We're going to sit at the table and we're going to talk. Are you ready to die? Are you ready to stand before God? Do you know the Lord? Do you know Christ? Have you given your life to Him? Do you see that everything else is passing and that the only true eternal thing that matters is God? And that we live our life and enjoy our life in such a way that glorifies Him? You see, the whole point here of that that driving statement, teach me to number my days, is to make me understand that I'm living my life not as some autonomous, independent being, but I am a created being, created by a a, a loving and good creator, and I am accountable to him. And help me to fear him, to cling to his son, and then to live my days to honor him. So I'm glad that his reflection on the tragedy of sin brings us back around. See where we're going? So now in verse 12, look at it. So teach us. Who's he talking to? God. See what's happened? We started with God. Then we turned and we looked at man and man's frailty and fallenness marked by death and judgment. But now he's turning, 
He's turning our eyes to hope. Teach us, Lord, to number our days. And then in verse 13, you've you got to pay attention to this. He lifts a prayer of salvation. Moses intercedes for the people. And, and I want you to pick up on this, because this might be a nuance that, that I, at first I think I glanced over this. How does the psalm start? Lord. What does he say in verse 13? Return, return O Lord. And you, if you have the legacy standard Bible, it'll say, return, O Yahweh. God's personal name. His covenantal name. The name of the Redeemer. <laughs> He's not just the everlasting God. He is our redeeming Savior. Return, O Yahweh. How long? Have pity on your servants. And then what happens, because I, I want to I draw this to a point, but, but what happens is verse 11, you get to verse 11, and we're all like, you know, we're all at angst. Like, man, I got to think about death. I got to think about judgment. Am I, am I right with the Lord? All these things. But, but, but look how the psalm begins, to, it, it, it ends. It goes to God's covenant name. It's the God who can save you. You see this? When he says Yahweh, suddenly the ears of God's people perk up because we know, wait, this everlasting God whose wrath has been displayed through death and through judgment, this God also saves. And if we turn to him, he can save us from death. He can save us from judgment. He can redeem our lives. That's what that statement means when he says return, O Yahweh. He is turning our eyes to the hills from which our salvation comes. And so, he intercedes for God's people, and I want you to observe quickly three prayers, okay? Now, I'm, I'm going to run through this, and you'll be like, well, you didn't go through this as slowly as you should have, but that's okay, watch. Verse 14, satisfy us. I'll just underline the statements. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and glad, be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Now, do you see what he prays? I mean, just quickly, Lord, satisfy us with your love and your mercy. He prays that the covenant God of salvation will satisfy their hearts with mercy and his love and that in him they will find joy. And what will happen? What will happen? Those days that are marked by death and darkness, right? Look what happens. They will be filled with gladness, and we will rejoice, and there'll be a reversal. You know what that's pointing to, don't you? Resurrection. There's hope. Death doesn't have to have the final word. Satisfy us with your love and mercy. And then the second prayer, verse 16, look what he says. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Show your power and majesty, Yahweh. Show this to us and to your children. Show your glorious to power. Show that you have power over death. Show that you have power over sin. Show that you have power over the just judgment that we deserve. And then in verse 17, he says, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And so... The last prayer is save us by your grace. 
Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. And so he prays that Yahweh will show grace and favor to these sinful people who are cursed by death, who face just judgment, and that in showing favor, he will not just save them, but he will redeem their futile lives. All the things that we just feel like are passing into distant memory and being forgotten, he says, remember our works. Remember the things that we do. This is full redemption here. But here's a question I want you to ask. Does Yahweh answer these requests? Yes, but not immediately. God's people just simply had to trust his promises. But guess what? These prayers have been answered. You know why? Because Yahweh, the everlasting God, has come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And on the cross, he died for our sins, and he took our judgment, and he went into the tomb. And on the third day, he rose from the grave, and he brings life and immortality. And he promises people who trust in him that though our days are numbered, and though our lives will wither away, he promises all who believe on him to have everlasting life. And that we will be one day raised with him to live in a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth. In Christ, we make our home and find that what happens in redemption is that he establishes our works. He gives meaning to our lives. What happens with Christ is he makes every moment count for his glory. So that believer... Whether you're bussing tables, or you are changing diapers, or you are working on cars, or you're teaching in a classroom, or whatever it is that you're doing, you do all for the glory of God. Why? Because Christ has saved you from sin, rescued you from death, and He has redeemed your life. And one day, though our bodies will fail and fade, we will dwell with Him in the house of the Lord forever. Oh, church, that we would see that Christ changes everything and gives meaning to every part of our existence, conquers the grave, vanquishes death, and gives us the promise of everlasting life. And oh, that we would pray, God, satisfy our hearts and souls with your love and mercy in the gospel. Show us power, majesty, and glory in Jesus, and save us by your grace. Pour out your favor that we will fear you rightly and live for you wisely. Remember what we said in the beginning? That a right view of God will correct 10,000 temporary problems. The gospel fixes every problem and redeems all of my yesterdays, my today, and forever. So, let me ask you the question. How then do we escape sin, death, and judgment that all of us face? How do we cope with just the the world that we live in? I mean, the crazy of your morning this morning, right? The the chaos that's in your life. How do we cope with, with the pressing realities of sorrow, the prospects of death, the truth of judgment? We trust in the everlasting Christ who's been revealed in the gospel. He will save your soul. 
He will redeem your life. And he will satisfy you forever. Are you ready to die? Are you? Are you ready to die? See, if you know Christ, you'll be ready to die. And if you're not ready to die, I wouldn't leave this building today without making sure I'm ready. Are you prepared for judgment? I wouldn't go flying into the busyness of life without first knowing, am I prepared to stand before God? Am I living my life in the fear of the Lord and resting in the truth of the gospel? Have you experienced God's grace and salvation? Is Jesus Christ the everlasting God, your hope and refuge? Because if he is, then you can sing. All our days are held in his hands. Your love and favor knows no end. And we rest in the wisdom of your plan, the everlasting God. If you're not resting in him, will you come to him today? And believer, will you lift your voice as we, as we stand together? Will you lift your voice to worship this everlasting God? Let's stand as the worship team comes. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the kindness and graciousness of your people to listen. Thank you for the greatness of the gospel. You are the everlasting God. We have spoken about hard things this morning. And if there be one here that is not ready to die and stand before you, may they today, may they today find refuge in Christ. May they believe upon him. And may each of us as believers, may may we be renewed in our faith, in our confidence that you are our refuge, that you are our king, that we will not fear death and suffering, and that we will live for your glory, that we will fear you rightly, and that we will honor you with the way that we live because you have redeemed us. In Jesus' name, amen.